two, one, excellent. <laughs> I don't know if you have many historians in the audience today, but I was thinking about World War II and how it, it was the deadliest conflict in all of human history. It resulted in, in estimates of 85 million people died as a result of the conflict. World War II began in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland and France and the United Kingdom subsequently declared war on Germany. But it wasn't for several years later, three years later, until the United States entered the war. German subs had been sailing for three years off the coast of, 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 of the United States. U-boats had actually sunk 10 ships right off the Outer Banks, and yet we failed to enter into the war. Most of the country was really oblivious to the fact that the enemy was literally within a couple miles off of our coast. It took many years later to realize how many ships were sunk off of that portion of the Outer Banks, called later Torpedo Alley, ended up being 500 and some ships that were sunk just within seven miles or less off of our coast. Yet it took the United States three years to enter into the war. Some said after the United States entered the war, it was like rousing a sleeping giant. Well, I think that's an apt metaphor. The United States was asleep and very vulnerable to attack. People didn't expect to be affected personally by the war over there. And that most people in the United States supported not intervening, that is, until they had a major wake-up call, until something shocked and surprised people in the United States, and, and everyone here, I believe, knows what that incident was. It was December 7th, 1941. As President Roosevelt said, it's a day that will live in infamy, it was when Pearl Harbor was attacked. They were in, still in the middle of peace talks with Japan when it was attacked and over 2,300 servicemen died. The majority of the U.S. Navy Pacific Fleet was damaged when 353 Japanese airplanes attacked Pearl Harbor. But it, it wasn't until they got that wake-up call that the U.S. entered the war. They were oblivious to the war going on around them. It raged all around the world, but it seemed distant because it wasn't here. We weren't familiar with it. It wasn't obvious, even though it really was right at our door. I think it's a good metaphor for us today as Christians. We don't realize that we are really in the midst of a war. In, in North America, things can become comfortable, especially living here in the Bible Belt. Things seem to be comfortable. We don't realize that we are in the midst of a war. That the enemy is not just at our gates, but the enemy is amongst us, in our community, in our attacking us in our homes, attacking us in school, attacking us in the workplace. The enemy is actively working to do battle against us. And so as we come to this portion in Ephesians, I'm about to read the, the passage in Ephesians, it, it's kind of like a smack in the face. It's a wake-up call of sorts. You see, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been talking about this glorious truth of who we are in Christ Jesus, our new identity in him as a radical new humanity. 
And then from chapters 4 and 5 and even just the last few weeks, he's been talking about what does it look like to live as God's new people, as his church? What does it look like to live in the world? How do we do that? He's talked about what does it look like to live out this humanity in the context of relationships in the home, in relationships in labor as well. And then all of a sudden he comes to this passage And I hope that it serves us like I believe it probably served the Ephesians who first received this letter as a bit of a surprise. Paul's talking about the glorious truths of God and how we're to live in light of that. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about some pretty wild stuff. He starts talking about the fact that we're in the midst of a war. And I think it's meant to jolt us awake, to rouse us from slumber, to realize that We are in a war. We need to be strong and we need God's protection or we won't be able to stand. Let's read God's word together. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for passages like this in your word that that rouse us from slumber. That point us to our need for you. But that also point us to the great hope we have in your strength. The great hope we have that you have equipped us with all that we need to combat this enemy that wages war against your people. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see the war that's going on around us. But even more so, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith and hope and confidence in your strength, in your armor, and your desire to have us take up your armor and be made strong in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know about last week for you all, but for last week for me was a little bit of a challenging week. Um, different weeks go different ways, and last week was one of those weeks that was a little more difficult. We, we were trying to have a challenging time dealing with the bank. We finished out our construction loan at our house. We were getting a new loan. The bank was kind of playing some games there. There were some discouraging pieces of news in regards to a few things in the church. I found out that my mom's cancer has progressed from her bones to her liver, And there's a very real chance that we may not have her very long. In the meanwhile, I'm aware of my own failings as a husband, as a dad, and aware of my inadequacies and my sins in areas where I'm not living as as we're learning how to live in Ephesians. So at the very beginning of the week, the circumstances seemed discouraging. I was tempted to lack faith, but at that point, 
I opened up my normal Bible reading plan. I use the version on my phone, by the way. If you don't have a Bible reading plan or some kind of plan for God's Word, I encourage you to do that. But I opened up my normal Bible reading plan, and ironically, even though I had not yet begun studying for this sermon, the passage for that day that I really needed to hear the most, it was Ephesians 6, um, verses 10 to 20. And I realized that I'd forgotten, I'd lost sight of the fact that we're in the midst of a war. It was encouraging for me to remember that. Yeah, of course I should expect difficulty. Of course I should expect challenges. Of course I should expect to be tempted, not only to sin, but to condemnation, discouragement. Of course I should expect to be thwarted and to be tempted to lack faith. We're in a war. But then the other encouraging thing is that God intends for us to be strengthened. God intends for us to be strengthened, not in our own strength. You see, in our own ability, we're not able to, when we have weeks like that, we're not able to be strong in ourselves. If you've ever tried that, it it's not only feels empty, it is empty. But we are encouraged in Scripture to experience strength in His strength. We're encouraged to put on, to take up the armor of God. Same passage that I'm preaching from today was what I needed to hear personally and be reminded of and get perspective on. And and I think that God really has this divinely planned for us as a church as well that as, as we are encountering various trials or difficulties or maybe you have some discouraging news you've heard about your family or about the church or other things like that, we need a reminder that we are in the midst of a war But God intends to strengthen us in his strength. And God also intends for us to clothe ourselves in his armor. At some point in your Christian life, maybe you've not felt that way before, but at some point in your Christian life, you're going to feel weak. You're going to feel out of gas. At times you might feel weary, discouraged, apathetic, or lack excitement. You're going to be tempted to read into things when you're like that. When we get like that, we really don't have a good or accurate perspective. We need God's word to inform our perspective. We also need to realize what is going on is it's not just this thing in front of us, but we're in the midst of a war. When you're weak, it's not a good time to trust your feelings or your emotions, and our perspective can often be off. Throughout Ephesians, Paul has made great efforts to show the Christians who they are in Christ. That's why we selected this book because really it goes right along with our mission as a church. It's talking about the mission of the church and it's talking about our mission as a church to identify ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ, to instruct us in how to grow as disciples, but then also to instruct us in the fact that we are on a mission as disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think... We need this because we can and we, we, lo- we do lose perspective. Our identity, it often shifts to subtly be in other things. Our hope subtly can shift to be in other areas. When things fail us, when we're disappointed in what we've placed our hope in, we can become disenchanted or discouraged. The call to Christian duty, the very real call to obedience that we have as followers of Jesus in those times can feel like it's overwhelming. When our hope, our confidence, our excitement about life, it's, think about this, when, you, when you're subtly founding your hope, your confidence in life on other things and those things crumble 
or get taken away or when you realize that they aren't that thing you thought they were. We can become disenchanted and be set up for failure and disappointment and disillusionment. We can tend to become critical and skeptical and judgmental. All these things that do damage to our soul, damage to the church body that we are a part of. Damage to our effectiveness as disciples of Jesus on this mission that we have. You see, we are on a mission. We are on a mission and we have an enemy though that wants to distract us, that wants to take us away, to subtly lead us to, to forget. Sometimes we can fail to see that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're not only living in the midst of a war zone, we've been enlisted as, as followers, as soldiers of the king. All throughout different places in scripture in the Old Testament, it's God's people are seen as his his warriors sent forth to do his purposes and it doesn't change in the New Testament. Now we are God's people, his radical new creation. And, and just like the devil was dead set against the original creation, when God first created man and woman, what happened? The devil immediately came in. He was assaulting God's creation. We shouldn't be surprised in the same way, and that's why I think in Ephesians, Paul's helping us see the same thing, the same connection. We shouldn't be surprised when God recreates mankind as this radical new humanity in Christ Jesus. When he gives us a new identity in him, we should not be surprised that the devil is right there. We can expect opposition in our church because the church, as we, we learned in Ephesians, is the primary place where God makes his purposes known to not only the world, but to the rulers and principalities and powers, talking about spiritual demonic forces. Not only that, we can expect all manner of wicked spiritual forces to seek to oppose us as we try to live out who God has called us to be. Paul's been showing what it looks like to live in this community in, in light of who we are. He's been giving us practical instructions and practical commands about how do we engage the world as disciples of Jesus Christ. But he also lets us know that we can withstand the worst opposition. We can be strong in the face of evil. But we need to hear this. We can't be strong in ourselves. When, when you try to be strong in yourself, when you try to make a lot of effort, you're gonna, you're gonna lose energy. You're gonna become despondent and despair and hopeless because we were never meant to rest in and trust in our own strength. So in these verses, Paul explains that we're in a lifelong struggle, but it's not a struggle against people or against physical rulers, really, even though the devil at times can use those things. He's also helping us see that in this life and death struggle, he doesn't want us to lose perspective, that not give up, to strengthen ourselves. Church, I believe we need to be strengthened, but not in our own strength. We need to strengthen ourselves in the strength of the Lord's might so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And as members of this radical humanity, he's not left us unprotected, he's given us armor. We're not defensive. We're not left without hope. 
And the main idea of these verses, it seems to be, the main idea that I believe that God would have us see is that we need supernatural strength. We don't need our own strength. We need supernatural strength and supernatural armor. We need supernatural strength and armor to stand against supernatural enemies that engage us personally. We're going to kind of do a little bit of a backwards look at these verses. We're going to start with verse 12, then we're going to go back and look at verses 10, 11, and 13. But the first thing that we're going to see as we look at verse 12 Look in your Bibles. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the first point we're going to see is that we are at war with a supernatural enemy force. We are at war. It's important for us to know that we are at war, to not be asleep, to not remain vulnerable. If we are to be effective, if we're to carry out the mission that God has called us to, we need to wake up and realize that we are at war and we need a wartime mentality. We need to know that we are at war with a supernatural enemy force. It's, it needs to be said in this postmodern age that we don't just wrestle against people. We don't just wrestle against the government. We don't wrestle against human societal structures. Our wrestling is not with our boss or whoever it is that you have difficulties with or your neighbor. They are, they're really just the outflow of this present age. This world and the material realm that we live in are not all that there is. You can get used to thinking about, okay, well, here's the scientific method, and here's all that there is, and if I can't see it, it's not true, it's not observable, I can't see it, but the reality is it's observable all around us in the evil that is prevalent, but we miss it sometimes. We fail to see that we have opposition. The word here for wrestling is, is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's a word that was used in that day and age for a couple different purposes. One of those purposes was um, wrestling as in like the Olympic Games. And so it's a, it's a very close picture. It's a, it's a close battle. The other time that word is used in ancient Greece was for doing kind of hand-to-hand combat in battle. It was a, a, an aggressive, close, personal war. So when Paul uses that word, he's talking about we wrestle. We're meant to have that image in our heads of of a hand-to-hand combat, breath on breath, sweat and blood wrestling. We wrestle, and he says not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present dark age that we live in. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is not a mortal force that we wrestle with. No amount of physical fitness will prevail in your wrestling with the powers of darkness. It's good to get in shape. It's good to eat well. It's good to be healthy. It's good to get enough sleep. Um, Those things help us be more alert, those things help us be more awake, but they won't help us in our battle against principalities and powers. We need something that is outside of ourselves. 
We need something greater than our own strength, greater than our ability. And the Apostle Paul, as we are walking out the Christian life, he really wants us to see that we cannot trust in our own ability to do all the things that he's called us to do. These aren't really new ideas. He's been subtly hinting at them throughout Ephesians. The spiritual forces of evil are against the good news of Jesus Christ. They're against the mission of the church generally and against the church specifically in our church as well. As disciples of Jesus Christ, if you are seeking to grow stronger in him and if you are seeking to to go and make disciples, you're in enemy, enemy territory. You're doing battle. The devil wants this to be in a place where we excuse ourselves by saying, well, you know what, I, I know what you say our mission of our church is, but what does that really mean? The enemy wants to make us to make any and every excuse for not taking up our armor, for not realizing that it's, it's not a complex thing. We're called to to be Christians, to be disciples, to be living on mission. But we like to make excuses and we have to realize that when, when, it, when we encounter those thoughts, we're wrestling with a wily enemy that wants us to be comfortable or maybe he wants us to be too busy or wants us to be too stressed out to carry out the mission that we have as disciples of Christ. The, the devil uses all kinds of tactics against us. The evil forces we are at war with will do whatever it takes to keep us from seeing the people in our lives that don't know Jesus and seeing the fact that they need Christ. He'll do whatever it takes to keep us from making relationships with the unbelievers in our lives because we're at war. Our enemy in this is not a boss or a bully or a neighbor or the government or somebody else we just wish would go away. He says our enemy is the cosmic powers over this present darkness. You see, we don't live in a true age of enlightenment. Sure, we like to think of the age of enlightenment when it comes to scientific discovery, but the Bible sets us straight and says, no, we live in a present age of darkness. In a dark age where we have elevated our ideas and our ways of doing things above our creator. We live in an age where we worship our own reason, our own ability. A dark age where we generally don't worship the one true God. Where we pervert who we were created to be. Where we exchange, exchange the truth about the creator for a lie. Where we worship the created thing instead of the creator. And notice all the ways that the devil and the opposition we face is described. Look at the very different words. Paul could have just said, we have an enemy, it's the devil. But he didn't just say that. He uses some, some pretty strong words here. He says, they are rulers. They are authorities. He says, they're cosmic powers. They're spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Why is he doing that? He wants us to see that this is no mere mortal battle we are waging. This is a battle with rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places that will use whatever means is at their disposable, human or otherwise, in this fallen world that we live in. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse in Daniel 10, 
12 and 13, a little bit of a glimpse of what could it look like? What does it look like? The fact that this unseen enemy that we have in Daniel, he has just been praying for God's help and his deliverance. And this archangel is coming to Daniel and he says to him, then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. This isn't just true in the Old Testament. This isn't about superstitious beliefs. We continue today to have a very real enemy. And there's a very real battle going on. Now, passages like that are not meant for us to to try to figure out, okay, what's the different hierarchy of demons? And what's the hierarchy of angels? And how do we figure that out? And do we address them? Do we, do we talk to the principalities and powers? Or how do we do those things? That's not the point of us hearing about that, either in Daniel or in Ephesians. It's for us to know that we have an enemy, but we have a remedy as well. We're not called to, to assign names, to cast demons out of chairs, to do weird things. We don't have to look for demons under every rock. And scripture never encourages us to do that. It never encourages us to go on hunts for evil. We don't have to hunt for evil is what it's saying. It's right there. But I want you to hear what scripture is telling us as well. We have no need to be frightened. We have no need to be afraid. Scripture earlier in Ephesians, if you remember, it said that we've been given every spiritual gift in Christ Jesus. It says that Jesus is in the heavenly places and that we've been seated with Christ far above all principalities and powers, the same word that we find here in this passage as well. We are at war with a powerful enemy, but here is the the news that we need to see. Here's the context we need to read these verses in. It's that the enemy is subjected power. He's underneath Christ. He's beneath his feet. If you remember back in Hebrews, it said he's put all things under his feet. And he set his enemies as a footstool for his feet. They may rule the realm of darkness, but evil does not rule us. We've been brought out of darkness and into his glorious light. Now look in verse 10. I want to look at verse 10 together. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The second point that I want to look at is that we must be strong in the Lord and in his might. We must be strong, but this is not a command from Scripture to buck up. To just try harder, just do better, just be stronger. Suck it up, buttercup. That's not what this is. Don't just work harder, be stronger. This is the strength we're being called to is dependent strength. It's not to be strong in our own might. It's not a call to be superhuman, not a call to discover the inner strength within within you. That's nonsense. We're called to finally strengthen ourselves. In the very end, when we are called to make effort, when we are called to do all that we can to live 
out this new identity at the end of those things and, and, and over all of those things we're to be strengthened in the strength of his might to do all those things the command here really is a passive command it could be worded of as be made strong be made strong be strengthened in the strength of the Lord and the strength of his might. So how do, how do we do that? Paul's, Paul's not saying that, you know what, you're a warrior and you need to go and find your inner strength, whatever that place is. Be strengthened in your family. Be strengthened by getting rest. Be strengthened by going away and getting a vacation. Be strengthened by going to Disney World. Be strengthened by learning how to do things. No, he's saying be strengthened in God's might and his strength. And this idea is not a new one. The Old Testament often depicted God as a mighty warrior. And in Isaiah 42, we can see that it's a picture of God going out to fight the battles of his people. And he's equipping himself with his own armor. He's equipping himself with a rod and with a sword. And he goes out and he strikes the enemies of Israel. And then we can see that he gives his armor, his strength to his people. So when it's all said and done, the strength to do what we're commanded in Scripture, it comes from the Lord and the strength of his might. You ever get really weary trying to obey, trying to follow God's commands? I think that's often because we're doing that in our own strength. Now that's not always. Sometimes life is just tiring and weary and we need to press on and be strong in him, to be refreshed in him. Sometimes, though, it's an indicator that our trust is really in our own ability to carry out God's commands. I remember a particularly stressful period of my life many years ago, and everything just seemed too much. And then I got perspective that, you know what? God is over all of this stuff. God is able. He's strong. He's mighty. And my circumstances didn't change, but what changed was my perspective and where I was putting my hope and my trust. And I actually received strength from God in the midst of that. Nothing changed. And I felt like, yeah, this is, this is no big deal. Our confidence to carry out the work that we're called to do as a part of this new humanity is in the strength of his might. What are you trusting in today? Are you trusting in your own ability to, if I can just organize my time better, if I can just get more things done, if I can just have a long enough quiet time, if I can just read 10 verses a morning, if I can pray for 40 minutes, if I can do this, if I can do that, then, and, and then I'll be okay. If I can just be a better person, then I'll be strong enough. And God says, no, be strengthened in me. Be strengthened in my might. Now, none of those things are, are bad things. Those can be the means that God uses to strengthen us, but it's, it's a subtle shift that we are our enemy wants us to make from trusting in God to trusting in the means that God gives us. And God says, no, trust in the strength of my might. All throughout Scripture, the Bible tells us about the strength of God's might. Paul speaks about God's strength in Ephesians. And if you think about it, the Bible, it really opens up talking about God's strength, doesn't it? What's the, what's the first part of the Bible? In the beginning, there was nothing, right? There was God. In the beginning, there was God in the beginning there was God and then what happened? God spoke. And it was just his creative speech that created everything. 
Think about that kind of power. I'd like to be able to get up in the morning and say omelet, and there it is. I mean, that's just a small thing. But, but God created time and matter and all of existence with his words. I can't even create a new pair of shoes. But see, the Bible starts off talking about the grandeur and the greatness, the might, the power of God over all things. He is the mighty one. He creates with words. He made light from nothing. He created man from the dust and breathed his life. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of a God who is over all, who is sovereign over all, who is mighty, who is powerful, who is at work, who's ordained all things. And then the strength of God is really demonstrated in each book of the Bible. You can go through every book of the Bible and see the mighty hand, the mighty delivering power of God. Even when man rebelled against God, God rescues time after time. God's over all things. God sent a flood to wipe out evil and recreate mankind to start over again. In Exodus, God redeems his people from the most powerful government at the time, the most powerful army at the time. He opens up the sea, lets his people walk through, and he just closes it back together again. It's no big deal for the mighty God that we serve. You see, the people of Israel were afraid to approach the mountain because when God's presence just descended on the mountain, it was too great, too mighty for them. They were saying, Moses, let us talk to you because that's too much for us. All throughout the Bible, we see the power of God in the New Testament. We see that Jesus demonstrated who he was and his strength and his might when he walked here on earth. Think about it, with one command, time after time, Jesus, when he walked the earth, demonstrated his power over sickness. He said to the paralytic, he said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And then they questioned him in their hearts, and Jesus said, what's harder? To say, rise, take up your bed and walk, or your sins have been forgiven? You see, he was demonstrating he had power. He had power over illness, and he had power over man's destiny, over forgiveness. He demonstrated he had power countless other ways when he healed so many other people. He demonstrated his power over nature. He's asleep in a boat with his disciples. There's this massive storm comes up. They think they're gonna die. He wakes up and he's it's like, how long do I have to put up with you? Okay, stop. And all of a sudden, the nature stops. The storm no longer rages. The sea is flat and calm like glass. And they're afraid of him because he's of his power. He demonstrated his power, his creative authority over matter. How many of you can make matter of water be firm under your feet and walk? He walked across the water to show he has power over even the molecules. He can, he can change what matter is. He proved that he had power of life over death. One point he commanded a little girl to life. Another occasion he called out to Lazarus who was in the tomb. He had been dead for four days. Now it's important that you know four days because it's impossible to mistake that somebody is alive for four days after they're in a tomb and wrapped up and embalmed. 
And his sister said, oh, don't, uh, don't open that door. He's going to stink. And yet Lazarus heard Jesus from beyond the dead. You see, Jesus doesn't just have power over physical life. He has power over the spiritual domain. He, he called Lazarus back. I'm sure Lazarus was in some ways happy, but in a lot of ways he's probably bummed. It's like, really? I've got to come back for 20 more years of this? But Jesus had power over the spiritual world that we don't see. He had power over life and death. And he fed over 5,000 on a couple occasions at least. And, and he, he, he didn't use a Star Trek replicator. He, he used his own hands. And he, by his own command, he made bread and fish to, to feed thousands to show that he was the creator. He was the one who provides for mankind. It was upon him that we depend. He proved his power over demons time after time with one word. And after the time where he was in the ship and the big storms came up, he crosses the Sea of Galilee. He goes over. They encounter this crazy guy. He's naked, running about tombs. He couldn't be bound with chains. He was so strong. He had a legion full of demons in him. And yet, with just a word, he casts out the legion of demons and sends them into a herd of pigs. You see, Jesus is mighty over all. And, and so when we're told that we can be strong in the power of his might, think about that for a moment. He says, be strong in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, and in the power of his might. Yes, he's telling us that we have a great supernatural enemy who, who seeks to assault us and stop us in every turn. And if we trust in our own ability, we will not stand. But he also wants us to see we can be strong in the power of his might. That, the might that is over all things. 1 Samuel 30 David was struggling, and it says of David that he found strength in the Lord. He found strength in the Lord. And Zechariah 10, 12, God promises, he says, he'll make his people who are gathered back home from exile, he says, I'll make you strong in the Lord. This is not about strength in ourselves. This is about a strength in God, a trusting in God, our identity and our hope being found in the Lord. And when our identity is found in Christ, that's how we are strengthened. When our hope is in him, that's when we are weak, that's when he proves himself strong. When we are in close relationship with him and depending upon him for strength, he makes us strong. But not only that, the third thing that we're gonna see from verses 11 to 13, there's something remarkable here. We're gonna talk a little bit more about it next, or two weeks from now. There's something very remarkable here in verses 11 and 13, and here's the point that we need to get, is that God has supplied us. God has supplied us his armor so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. God supplied us with his own armor and we can stand against the devil's schemes. He, he doesn't give us a command to create armor. He doesn't say, okay, um, because the devil's attacking you, you, gotta, you better be strong, you better eat your Wheaties, and you better make some armor because he's coming. No, he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God. 
So the third point we need to get is that God has supplied us with his armor so that we may stand against the devil's schemes. And we're told to wear this full armor, not just once, but twice. In in verse 11, where Paul says to put it on, and again in verse 13, Paul says to take it up, put it on, and then don't put it down, take it up. Why? Because we are tempted at any given point in our lives as Christians not only to not put on the armor God's given us, but to put it down and to start trusting in ourselves and our own ability. And Paul, in another book of the Bible in Galatians, he's, he chastises them. He says, you foolish Galatians, did you begin this on your own? Do you think you're going to continue this on your own? And here he says, no, no, be, be strong in the Lord. The power of his might put on his armor so you'll be able to stand. And this putting on armor, it's not just an illustration for kids to dress up in little costumes and feel big about themselves. This is meant to be a, a metaphor for us today. Now, sometimes a metaphor like this is, is not easily identifiable because we don't fight with, typically, with a helmet and a breastplate and a shield and a sword. But they're important because they talk about the parts of the body that they cover, our mind and things like that. And we're going to go into that in a little more detail next week. But we need to be able to see is that his armor is still effective for us today because it protects us in the very places we're most vulnerable. It protects our thoughts. It protects our hearts. It protects us, our whole body, with a shield. He's given us a weapon. But instead of going into that this week, I want to see some other things here. Is that why do we need God's armor? And it's because the devil is scheming against us. There's an old book by a guy named Thomas Watson. If you, if you can read the Puritans, I'd encourage you to go and get that book or go and get an abridged version of that. And it's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It, it's, it's one of the, the best books I know on seeing and identifying the various ways that the devil tends to assault us. You see, the devil is a scheming enemy He's been around for thousands of years. Think about that. If you were around for thousands of years, I think you'd be pretty good at math or pretty good at, if you wanted to be, or pretty good at philosophy or pretty good at theology or pretty good at science or pretty good in whatever topic you can think of, the arts. The devil has been around for thousands of years and is a master manipulator. We need to be strong in the strength of God's might. We need his armor because we have a scheming enemy. Now, we're not meant to be intimidated by that, but we're meant to be sober by that and say, I need God's strength. I can't do this on my own. I must not be self-sufficient. I need God's protection, and I have it. That's our hope. But the devil is not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He can't read your mind. He can't make you do anything. But it says that he does scheme against us. He, he's crafty. That word means crafty, tricky. He's deceitful, scheming. And he sends his evil followers out to do battle against God and his new creation. And all of his forces that are aligned, they're constantly looking to attack, to harass, to, to thwart God's plans generally, to thwart God's plans in this church, and to thwart God's plans in your own life. But don't think of these schemes as just being scarier in your face. They're bent on attacking your faith. They seek to discourage. They seek to cause discord, disunity. 
If the church is the primary place where God demonstrates his purposes in the world and demonstrates his purposes to principalities and powers and rulers, the same words we used are here, used here, if the church and then our church is a manifestation of that, if it's the place, if our radical new humanity is the place where God is carrying out his purposes, don't you think we're going to be assaulted? Where the body of Christ is united, evil seeks to divide and conquer to cause doubts about leadership, to cause doubts about direction, the purpose of the church. Our enemy tries to stir up all manner of attacks, of criticism, dissatisfaction, to have us think of ourselves the only ones who really know or have understanding or true insight. Why? Because it keeps us from receiving where God's put us and keeps us in a proud place to experience resistance from God. The devil's subtle and he uses subtle attacks. He seeks to have people feel isolated and alone. He seeks to tempt you to withdraw. You're just too tired. You don't need to be around God's people this week. You know, your kids always get sick whenever you go to church. Just don't take them to church anymore. To feel like your struggles, your temptations, your difficulties are unique and therefore insurmountable. That's an attack from the devil. We have a roaring lion that seeks to devour The devil seeks to have the rich put their confidence and their trust in riches or in their ability and to always be seeking more security through riches. He seeks for those who don't have money here, he seeks to to have you lust for money as if that's going to be fulfilling. As if if I just had enough money then then everything would be okay. I understand that, that we're all called to be content but I just need a little bit more and I just need a little more stability before I can be content, before I can be strong in him. He seeks to cause discontentment that we're never satisfied with what God gives us and we subtly impugn the character of God when we don't get what we want. These are all schemes of the devil. Some of the other schemes of the devil is that he causes us to hate and be bitter and have enmity between our fellow Christians if he can introduce discord in the place where God primarily reveals his purposes in the earth, then he's winning the battle. He seeks to create discontent, to put our confidence in our ability to obey God. So if he can't, if he can't make us forget God, then he wants to make us hope in our own ability to obey God. So that's why Paul, after these commands that he gives us, this whole string from chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, and all of those commands, Paul says, whoa, wait a minute, finally be strong in the Lord. Don't don't think you're gonna do this on your own. Why? Because our enemy is scheming, wanting us to think that we we can please God apart from Christ. Why? Because if he can do that, if he can get us to be legalistic, it it robs the power of the gospel in our lives. It robs the power of God's grace to sustain us and strengthen us. He wants society to throw out the created order of God and instead decide on what's best for ourselves. He wants disobedience to parents to be approved. The devil expects parents to be permissive and undiscerning. The devil wants the curse of wives who want to dominate their husbands and the curse of husbands who are abusive and not loving their wives. The devil seeks for us to embrace our independence and pride and think that we can be good enough or smart enough or acceptable on our own. 
There's a little satirical book that a guy named C.S. Lewis wrote. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And in The Screwtape Letters, it's a series of letters from Uncle Screwtape, who is a senior demon, and he's advising young Tempter Wormwood on, on how to assault his patient, his, his human patient, who he's trying to get to not follow God. And it's an insightful picture into all the different ways that the devil tries to assault us. And I think it's a, it's a brilliant picture, really, of, of how the devil doesn't come straight at us. He's, he's craftier than that. He's scheming. He encourages schemes like distraction to keep the Christian from focusing on his true mission. The schemes of satisfaction and lesser good things like food or drink or sex, the praise of men, so we won't look for real satisfaction in God. These are the schemes of the devil. Another scheme reveals to cause the Christian to, to worry about the future, that God won't be enough. One point in the letter, the tempter tries to convince his Christian enemy that the devil doesn't exist to keep him thinking he can explain and resolve anything with enough knowledge. And that's, none of those temptations are foreign to us today. And I'm guessing that one or more of those temptations is present in our life. If we're not aware that we have an enemy, we'll grow lackadaisical. We won't take up the armor we need to stand. The devil even tries to deceive and convince us that our desires for good things, they're legitimate and we, we need them, we must have them and if we don't have them, God is not good, he is not faithful, he's not enough. We have an enemy and we must stand against his schemes. He's a master at camouflage and we need God's armor to be able to stand against the wiles, the, the schemes of the devil. And the implication is that without his armor, we won't stand. It would result in disaster. It would be like attacking a machine gun nest with absolutely no protection and no weapons. It's going to get messy. It's going to end badly. But we're to put on that full armor of God. It's, it's as if it was a heavily armored tank standing up against a machine gun nest. And yes, those, those bullets might fly. It may get loud, but they won't penetrate that tank will be able to stand firm and that's that still that, that standing firm is talking about is that, that resolve in the face of an attack. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul said to put on the new self. And really, this is just carrying out, what does it look like to put on the new self? It looks like putting on our new identity. It looks like following Jesus. It looks like being strong in him. It looks like putting on his armor. That's putting on the new self. Created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. And we see that part of putting on the new self is by putting on God's armor. Later we're going to look at, in a couple weeks, what this putting on the new self looks like. This new armor we've been given looks like in detail. But I think we need to get something here. This isn't just any old armor. This is God's own armor. I like to, to listen to books on audio and there's, there's all kinds of allegories that we listen to and one of those is called The Door Within and, and in, the, in, these, in, these, in these stories we, we hear about this protagonist and how they're helpless on their own really until they're given this special armor from the king. The king in his own forge with his own 
his own metals, crafts. He has his craftsmen make armor specifically designed just for them and that when they put this armor on, they're now able to stand victoriously. But this is something even better than that. When it talks about putting on the full armor of God, it's not just talking about something God makes for us. This is talking about being armored with God's armor. It's the same armor that Jesus wore here on the earth. And now Jesus the king says, put on my armor. This is my armor. Take it. Put it on. You'll be able to stand firm. It's the same armor that our king wore as he walked the earth. We're to put on his armor so we can withstand the schemes of the devil. We've been given the armor of our mighty king. We don't need to be fearful. We can have great confidence and hope. I like the way that a guy named John Stott who recently passed away, a great thinker about God, I like the way he put it when he described the passage. He said the entire passage is suffused with a spirit of confidence and hope. And the reader is left not with a feeling of despair, but with a sense that Satan can be defeated. We can put on our creator's power. We can put on his might. We can be strengthened with his might. Not only that, we don't just put on any old armor. We put on our king's very own armor. Take up the whole armor of God to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. How do we stand firm? By being strong in his might, by taking up his armor. The days that we live in are evil, and this evil age, it's that time between Christ's coming and his return. It's also those times when we are particularly assaulted in our mission. And at times, the devil can come around behind us and ambush us when we least expect us. So the Apostle Paul is warning us to be on guard, take up the whole armor. He says something else. It's not just a partial armor. It's a whole armor. It's a complete armor. It's a full armor armor in every way it is sufficient it's not lacking church we have been called just like the Ephesian church in this letter that Paul has written he is calling the church not just the Ephesian church not just the church universal but he's also calling us as Christians to the same thing he's calling us to have a new identity in Christ Jesus he's called us to be a part of his body He's calling us to be a part of carrying out his purposes in the earth. He's calling us to reflect him, to image him, to grow in him, and then to take his word out and to do damage to the enemy as we carry out the good news. But to do that, we need his strength to stand firm. We need his armor. But here's the cool thing. We can be confident because the victory's already been won. You see, it says Christ is the head over all things to the church. You remember that earlier in Ephesians? Christ has been given as the head over all things. He's been given as the head over all things, principalities and powers and everything, wickedness, evil, whatever. He's been given as the head over all things to the church, to you, to me, to to our church. We can have confidence that at the name of Jesus, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you remember back from our study in Ephesians last year, it said that God has made the enemies of Christ his footstool. They're subservient to him. 
Hebrews 2 told us that through his death, he destroyed the one who has power over death, that is the devil. Colossians 2.15, Paul wrote of Christ that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, same word, rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We are called to be strong in that might, that triumphant, victorious might, realizing we have a battle, but we're to be strong in his might and put on the king's very own armor. According to historians, the Roman centurion was the picture of one who would be counted on when the going got tough, no matter the opposition, that the centurion would be the one when all of his men fell away to stand firm under pressure to not give way. And that's the picture here. Church, we face battles. We face discouragement. We face despair. We face condemnation. There's a war raging around us. It's not just off our coast. It's, it's everywhere we are. We must not give in, must not give way. The devil and his cohorts, they're strong, but Christ is stronger. Jesus has already triumphed over evil and the final victory is secure. Now for us as believers, what we're being called to do is to appropriate what he's already won, to put on his strength, to put on his might, to trust in his ability to put on his armor, trusting in the fact that he is already one. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, I pray that you would Enable us to cast aside all trust in ourselves. Lord, I pray there would not be any spirit of fear here in this room. Lord, I pray that you would cast out any fearful thoughts or imaginations. But God, I pray that you would use this scripture to to cause us to not try to hope in our own strength and our own ability and to see how futile and, and ridiculous that is. And God, I pray that you would instead let us breathe out trusting in ourselves, Lord, and let us breathe in resting and trusting in you. You are the God who is undefeatable. You reign and you rule, Lord. You are over all things. You are omnipotent. You are all-powerful. Lord, I thank you that we can trust in you, so I ask that you would enable us to be strong in the strength of your might and that you would enable us to take up your armor. In Jesus' name, amen.